This audio recording is presented by New City in downtown Orlando. The reading of God's Word this morning comes from Psalm 130. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord. More than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. This is God's word. Please be seated. We have a lot, a lot to cover today, so I want us just to dig in. And in light of uh, this being the first week our campus outreach friends are with us for the summer, I'm going to give a longer introduction in order to explain where we are in our series Uh, But we've created some very simple visuals that I think will help those of you who have been here all along to understand better. And I think it'll help our campus outreach friends uh, to catch up faster. And so our current uh, sermon series is entitled uh, Psalms, Worship in Every Circumstance. And so the Psalter, the 150 Psalms, is God's gift to us. It teaches us how to worship Him, how to approach Him, uh, how to surrender to Him uh, in the various places that we find ourselves uh, on life's path. And so you can see from the first visual, uh, the dominant metaphor for life in the Bible and the dominant metaphor for life in the Psalter is that life is a path. It's a journey. Uh, It's a pilgrimage. And the Bible is clear. It tells us to expect highs and lows in life and to expect a lot of level places. And, And the Psalter, one way you can look at the 150 Psalms in the book of Psalms is the Psalter is given to us uh, to show us how to worship God uh, wherever we find ourselves on that path. The 150 psalms are all unique, and each one of them offers something distinctive to us, but the psalms themselves actually fall into about 10 genres or categories. And as you read the Psalter and think about life, you're going to realize that these various genres in the Psalter are best applied to certain places on the path. So for example, uh, the psalms of confidence, which would be our next visual, uh, like Psalm 23, uh, Psalm 27, Psalm 131. The psalms of confidence are, are best applied to those places in life where the uncertainty of the future is particularly obvious and and where that reality is causing us uh, anxiety. So let's say you've applied for a job or you've applied for entrance into a particular school and you know that you won't know for weeks uh, or even months if you're going to be accepted into that school or hired for that job. Or to take it up a notch, let's say that the doctor uh, finds a tumor or a spot and and, and they want to run some tests. Uh, It could be nothing, It could be everything. And so you see at those moments of heightened uncertainty and increased anxiety, uh, the the Psalms invite us to run to the Psalms of confidence and learn how to trust in God's presence and God's power, God's grace and God's goodness, no matter what happens next, whether we go low or go high. Uh, We've also had two sermons on the Psalms of Meditation, uh, Psalm 1 and then part of Psalm 119. The Psalms of Meditation, uh, they teach us what to do when life's path is level and straight and what you might be tempted to call normal. 
Uh, when things are normal, we're, we're tempted to live life and pursue worldly things. But the Psalms of meditation invite us to make the most of those level places, to chew on God's word and to think about how God's word will best apply to the inevitable ups and downs that we will encounter. And so right now, uh, this sermon is our third sermon in the genre of repentance. So this will be the next uh, visual. By the way, if you like these, I drew them. (laughs) If you don't like them, a professional drew them, and you're not smart enough to catch on to how good they are. The Psalms of repentance are best learned from, applied to, and owned in our souls during those seasons in life where we experience a low because we sin. Listen to the first verse of Psalm 130. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. Now other psalms, like the one we read yesterday in City Bible Reading, other psalms are going to teach us how to worship and approach God and surrender to God when we're low because people sin against us or because uh, nature hurts us. But this psalm and this genre teaches us what to do when we're in the depths because we blew it. You can know that because if you look at verse 2, the psalmist is asking for mercy. He's asking for forgiveness in verse 4. In Psalm 130, someone didn't persecute the psalmist. The psalmist persecuted someone. And so, as I said, this is our third sermon on the Psalms of Repentance. Our first sermon was uh, on Psalm 32, which was a psalm about repentance. So David, in Psalm 32, teaches us that when we deal with our sins, we need to choose the path of repentance uh, instead of the path of religion or irreligion. Again, for those of you that weren't here, listen carefully. I have to say this quickly. Irreligion is to believe in neither absolute guilt nor divine forgiveness. Uh, Irreligion is trying to keep silent about and intentionally avoiding the guilt we feel within because we blew it. Religion is to believe in absolute guilt, but not divine forgiveness. In religion, we try to do something to cover over our sins and to ease our guilt. But in repentance, in the gospel of Jesus Christ, we acknowledge our sin something that irreligious would never do. And we, we do not continue on in our efforts to cover our sins, something the religious would never do. We confess our transgressions to the Lord, and we humbly seek his forgiveness. Now, this part is huge. I wish when I was a college student, I would have known this next bit. Psalm 32 teaches us that, the, that only the repentant, only the repentant have intimacy with God, happiness in their heart, and growth in character. Religion and irreligion cannot provide you with those things. It's huge. So Psalm 32 is a psalm about repentance, but Psalm 51, the next psalm in our mini-series on repentance, is actually David's prayer of repentance. Psalm 51, according to the heading for that psalm, is the prayer that David prayed after his galactic fail in regards to Bathsheba and Uriah. If you recall, in 2 Samuel 11, King David is lazy, arrogant, and deceptive. He is clearly guilty of lust, kidnap, sexual abuse, hard-heartedness, injustice, and murder. Psalm 51 is David's prayer of repentance when Nathan the prophet visited him and confronted him with the weight and the gravity of his sin. And so again, by way of review, in Psalm 51, the classic prayer of repentance in the Bible, you can see that repentance is comprised of three things, realizations, supplications, and expectations. 
In prayers of repentance, we come to certain realizations like, I'm wrong and I have no excuse. I can't fake it and I can't fix it. We come to the realization in our repentance, what God wants in me is a heart crushed and a spirit broken. In prayers of repentance, there are also supplications where based on these realizations, we we desperately beg God to forgive us and to cleanse us and to renew us and to rebuild us and to fill us with His Spirit. Finally, in Psalms of repentance, there's an expectation that God is going to answer my supplications. And because of that, I have expectations that I'm going to love more and behave better in the future. And so this morning is our third psalm in the genre of repentance. Psalm 32 was theoretical. You're going to be tempted by irreligion and religion, but choose repentance. Psalm 51 was practical. If you choose repentance, it looks like this. Psalm 130 is existential. Let's say you've repented or are repenting for either a massive failure or an ongoing sin. What do you do now? Psalm 130 is all about waiting. What do you do now? You wait. Okay, six points on waiting. I did say six points. Not two sermons, six points. Some are normal in length, some are very, very short. Okay, six points. Uh, the call to wait, what we're waiting for, what to do while waiting, how to know we've waited well, how to know we waited well, how we can know that our waiting is not in vain. They're going to be on the screen. For those of you trying to take notes, just relax. Six points. First, the call to wait. So let's say we've sinned big time, or let's say we're finally annoyed by that ongoing sin that has been with us for years, and we're following this thread of repentance through the Psalter, and we come to Psalm 32, and we find great hope in the fact that God is in the business of forgiving huge sinners like David. And we've identified our version of irreligion, where we made excuse for our sin or blamed everyone else but ourselves for our sin. We've identified our version of religion where we put ourselves on some sort of probation and promise God that we're going to work better in the future. We've identified those paths that don't work, and we've decided I'm going to repent because I want to know God, I want to be happy, and I want to grow. And so we've sinned a big time. We've decided that repentance is our choice, and we follow the thread from Psalm 32 to Psalm 51. And after studying what repentance is, we actually begin to repent. In humiliating fashion, we begin to own our sin before God. We're begging him with expectancy, uh, begging him to move in and to do his thing, to bring his work, to bring his salvation. And so what now? Is everything over? What's next? You follow the thread to Psalm 130, and seven times in four verses, Psalm 130 says, wait. The call to wait is either directly stated or clearly implied seven times in four verses. Verses one and two are this impassioned plea for mercy. It's a very short prayer of repentance. Verse five says this, I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. And in his word, I wait. I know in your English translations it says hope, but that's because the translators didn't want to write wait a third time. It's the Hebrew word for wait. Verse 6, my soul waits for the Lord. Implied, I wait for the Lord more than watchman for the morning. Implied, I wait for the Lord more than watchman for the morning. Verse 7, O Israel, not hope, that's a bad translation. Wait for the Lord. I feel like he's got a point to make. The verb actually in the Hebrew in verse 1 reads this way, I have been crying out. I have been waiting. 
my soul has been waiting. In other words, this repenting and this waiting has been going on for quite some time. I sin. I choose repentance. I repent. Now what? I wait. So first, the call to wait. But second, what are we waiting for? And by the way, this point is what I call phenomenological. That means you can't fully understand it unless you've experienced it. That means when something is phenomenological, words won't describe it and words can't adequately define it. I'm sorry. In verses 1 and 2, the psalmist is repenting and he's begging the Lord to listen to him. In verses 3 and 4, the psalmist is reflecting on the truth that God is a forgiving God. In verses 5 and following, there are these seven calls to wait. And you finally see what he's waiting for in verses 5 and 6. Verse 5, I wait for the Lord. My soul, that place of emotion and passion and desire, my soul waits for the Lord. Keep going. And in his word, I hope, but better yet, uh, for his word, for his word, I wait. The psalm is incredibly clear. Seven calls to wait for one thing, for God to show up and speak to you. Now listen and think. We've repented. First we've sinned. Then we've repented. We're in the hole. We're in the mire. We're in the depths. We're low. We've been repenting, or we've been there for a while, and and we begin to think, how do I get myself out of here? Or we begin to think, what human can I call and and have them come help me get out of here? We're tempted to take ourselves to that favorite grace passage or gospel passage in the Bible, and we're tempted to read it to ourselves in order to get ourselves out of the pit. Or we're tempted to go to a friend and have that friend tell us their favorite grace passage or gospel passage in order to get out of the pit. And I'm here to tell you, that is not what the psalm is teaching us to do. That is not the same as waiting for the Lord. I know you're thinking, but Ted, it says that he's waiting for the Lord and for his word, and his word is the Bible, and we now have the Bible, so we have nothing to wait for. What we need to do is read the Bible and read about God's forgiveness and read about his grace in order to no longer be in the depths. That's too modern. It's too American. It's too Presbyterian. The word for word in verse 5 is the Hebrew word for the spoken word. The psalmist is waiting for God to come and personally Speak to him. The psalmist is not waiting for what you might call biblical truth. And in fact, the psalmist makes mention of biblical truth in verses 3 and 4 and verses 7 and 8. The psalm is chocked full of biblical truth. It is full of good theology. It's proving that the psalmist is thinking about God's word, but that's not what the psalmist is waiting for. He's not waiting to know more about God. He's waiting to know God. He doesn't want to read the Bible to himself. He wants God to come and read the Bible to himself. When in the pit, while repenting, we don't run to Romans 8. We don't run to John 8. We don't run to 1 John 1. We don't run to Micah 7. We don't go there in order to get out of the pit. We need God himself to go there and pull us out of the pit. Further, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, but Ted, community is a means of grace. You've told us that. 
I agree with you that, that I don't need to read my favorite gospel passage to myself, but what I need is to confess my sins to others and, and have them read their favorite gospel passage to me, and then I can get out of the pit. Actually, no. Look at verse 7. The first half of the psalm is a prayer of an individual to God. The second half are words spoken by that individual to community. Notice what he doesn't say in verse 7. He doesn't say, For with the Lord is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, so you're pardoned, you're forgiven, you're free, you're out of the pit. No, he says, Because of who God is, start of verse 7, O Israel, wait for the Lord. You see, I'm a man and I'm a pastor. And I think the main reason this congregation doesn't know God, feel happy, and experience growth to the extent we'd like is not because we consciously choose religion or irreligion. Nor, uh, let me say it this way, it's not because uh, we consciously choose religion or irreligion over repentance. I think it's because we don't know how to get to the depths of repentance. And I think it's because we have no idea what to do when we get to the bottom of repentance. Of course I want us to read God's word in the low place. The psalmist was obviously doing that. Of course I want us to live in gospel community where we remind one another of grace and mercy and love and forgiveness like the psalmist does in verses 7 and 8. But this psalm tells us seven times that what we should be telling ourselves and what we should be telling each other is to wait in the low place for God himself. There is a huge, huge difference. And now I said this teaching is phenomenological. And by that I mean it's existential, it's experiential, it's emotional, it's spiritual. Unless you've experienced it, you can't fully understand it. And once you've experienced it, words cannot adequately describe it. About 10 years ago, I blew it big time and I sinned significantly against a very close friend. And I tried to run from it, and I tried to make up for it, but finally I began to pursue my friend for forgiveness. I called him and left him a very long voicemail of begging for forgiveness. I emailed him and begged him uh, for forgiveness, and then I waited, and I waited, and I waited for months. In the past, I had experienced this friend's grace in much smaller matters. In the past, my friends had experienced this man's grace. My mutual friends during this time of waiting kept telling me, I'm sure he's forgiving you. I'm sure he will forgive you. Finally, late one night, my friend called and he simply said, I'm on my way over. I went out to the porch and I put two rocking chairs side by side and I sat down in one of them and my friend pulled up and he walked up onto the porch and he moved the chair that I had put beside me and he put that chair right in front of me and he sat down and he looked me in the eye and he said directly to me, I love you. I forgive you. I care about you. I want your friendship. Now let's talk. Consider the difference between me telling myself that he will forgive me and him coming up on my porch and forgiving me. Consider the difference between my friends telling me he's gracious, he will forgive you, and him actually showing up and grabbing a hold of me and saying, I love you and you're forgiven. It's phenomenological, it's experiential, it's spiritual, it's existential. The divines would call it vital. Have you ever experienced something like that with God the Father? Have you ever gotten to and waited in the depths of repentance? Have you ever had him show up and speak to you? Has God Almighty ever whispered in your ear, I forgive you, now let's talk about it? 
Has the love of an infinite God ever been poured into your finite heart and caused you to dance and to weep and to shout for joy all at the same time? Think about Luke 15. The younger son comes home in order to repent. Has God the Father ever run to you, grabbed a hold of you, fallen upon your neck, and kissed you over and over and over? Sure, we know about God. We're Presbyterian. But do we know God? Jonathan Edwards frequently said, it's one thing to factually know that honey is sweet. It's another thing altogether to actually taste honey. Have you ever tasted the honey of the forgiveness of God? Maybe we haven't yet repented biblically. Maybe we haven't yet gotten to the depths of repentance. Maybe we haven't yet waited there long enough for the Lord to show up. I've been crying out. My soul has been waiting. First, a call to wait. Second, what we're waiting for. Third, what to do while waiting. So you've sinned, you've chosen repentance, you're repenting. And you get the sense because of this sermon that God is saying, wait for me in the low place. What do you do while waiting? Well, obviously you keep crying out. Verse one, out of the depths I have been crying to you. Also, you you have to be on the lookout for substitute saviors. We have to realize that we don't like to wait. Also, being uncomfortable and being out of control is not something we usually embrace. We're going to usually push against that. When in a hole, we don't naturally go down. We try and go up. Also, we have to be beware of the propensity, uh, our own propensity to save ourselves. We have to uh, beware of our propensity to look to our community to save us. We have to beware of our community's propensity to want to be God and save us. So those are obvious, but less obvious and more crucial than all of those is this, what to do while waiting. Try and get lower. Look at verse 1. Out of the depths, literally out of the deepest place, I cry out to you. While waiting, listen, if you don't want to know God, if you don't want to have real enduring joy, if you don't want to be changed, skip all of this. Religion and irreligion is so much better right now. While waiting, presume that God's inviting you to go lower. While waiting, presume that you haven't gotten to the bottom of this. While waiting, presume that you're not as broken and crushed as you can be. Our plan is to study Psalm 6 next week, another crowd pleaser. It's another psalm of repentance. This is the picture of a man repenting. My soul is greatly troubled, but you, O Lord, how long? I am weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with my tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. Listen to James chapter 4 in case you thought that's only an Old Testament concept. James 4, New Testament, Jesus' brother. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourself, lower yourself before the Lord and he will exalt you. Does our repentance look like this? Weeping wretchedness, getting as low as we can possibly go. If not, how do we, while waiting for the Lord, get to a lower place? What to do while waiting? Get to a lower place. Two ways to get to a lower place. Prophets and perspectives. 
Prophets and perspectives. First, prophets. You usually have to have a prophet in your life to get you to a lower place. Think about, about the story in 2 Samuel 11 again. David did not realize and see the severity of his sin until Nathan the prophet showed up and showed it to him. You see, David in 2 Samuel 11, he actually rationalized the way the death of an entire troop as, quote, being the way war works. And in that rationalization, he was not guilty, but then Nathan showed up in chapter 12, and Nathan called it murder. And all of a sudden, it became a big deal to David. David just assumed that any woman would be blessed by being with him once she had the opportunity to be with him. But Nathan the prophet shows up and said, no, that's kidnap. That's sexual abuse. Here here again, Psalm 51.7, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and crushed heart, O God, you will not despise. I'm convinced that God often lets us wait in the depths to give us a chance to go lower. Our goal in repentance, what we have an influence over is our heart and how crushed it gets. And one thing we can do while waiting for the Lord to speak his forgiveness to us, and one thing we can do while waiting for the Lord to visit us is to try and take ourselves to that lower place by first inviting prophets into our lives to show us the gravity of our sin. But second, we can try to gain a different perspective on the situation. In 2 Samuel 12, when God sends Nathan to confront David, what does Nathan do? He tells him a story. Chapter 12, verse 1. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and he said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up and, he grew, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock and herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Why does Nathan do that? Why does he story David? Because in order for David's heart to be crushed over his sin, he had to see and experience his sin from another perspective, from the perspective of the one sinned against. If you know the story well, you know it worked. Verse 5, Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, that man has done this, and he deserves to die. In one sentence, Nathan crushes David's heart. You are the man. But you did not take a lamb. You took a beloved wife. You did not kill a lamb. You killed a man and his fellow soldiers. You see, God doesn't rescue us right away because he wants us to go lower and he wants us to get a crushed heart by considering what our sin has done to those who were injured, who were injured when, we, when we sinned against God. This is for your own reflection and this is for dialogue and community, but just two examples. If we want to get lower in regards to pornography... We have to think for a while about what it's like to be our present or future spouse. We have to change perspectives. Consider your spouse lusting over, wanting, preferring, valuing someone besides you. Begin to feel the humiliation and the insecurity and the betrayal. That's a good thing. When you think you might cry, you're starting to get there. 
If we want to get lower in regards to our anger with our kids, we have to gain their perspective. Think how scary it is to have someone five times your size towering over you, pissed off at you, and yelling at you. Think about the design of God that our children, that first and foremost, were to delight in them. And instead of being developmentally nourished by our delight, they're developmentally uh, poisoned by our anger. And it only lasts for a minute, but in them it will last for years. If you think you want to cry, you're starting to get there. What do we do while waiting? Through prophets and through changing perspectives, we crush our hearts. Because a broken and crushed heart, our God will not despise. It is so cool to say that grace runs downhill. If that's true, get as low as you can go and get as much of it as you can. Humble yourself before the Lord and he will exalt you. Exalt yourself in the presence of the Lord and he will humble you. We're a lot further along than you think. We're well more than halfway, but we're only through the third point. The next two points are very short, but I pastorally feel as if they're very necessary. They're necessary because this is so phenomenological, it's so existential, it's so spiritual, it's so personal. They're necessary because we're not good at this yet, and because where I come from, we don't have a whole lot of models for it. And so I'm thinking about this sermon, I'm thinking about this teaching, and the Lord has laid it on my heart to put two training wheels on our bike. We don't know how to ride this bike yet, so I'm going to put two training wheels on this bike. Because think, how do you know you're waiting well? How do you know if your waiting hasn't slipped into unbelief and cynicism? How do you know if you haven't made an idol or a work out of waiting? How do you know if the, if the Lord is visiting you? How do you know if you're not resisting his spirit? But also, how, how do you know you waited well? Past tense. Let's say you're, you're no longer feeling as though you're low. How do you know it's God who lifted you out? How do you know that that low hasn't become the new normal that you're used to? And so because this teaching is so personal, but because it has to be done in community, I want to put these two training wheels on our bike because I think we'll crash on both sides. Point four, how do you know you're waiting well? I want you to look at this psalm. There is zero doubt in this psalm. Look at how faith-filled it is. Look how solid the theology is in this psalm. Waiting well is not wondering whether or not God can or will come. Waiting well is wondering when he will come. Three places in the psalm, the psalmist talks about God's character. He uses the word in the English, with. It's a Hebrew word for companionship. Look at verses 3 and 4. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness. That's incredible theology. Look at verse 7. The companion of the Lord is steadfast love, and the companion of the Lord is plentiful redemption. The psalmist is not doubting God's character. He is saying wherever God goes, love and grace and forgiveness go with him. It's not a matter of what God will do when God gets there. It's not a matter of whether or not God will show up to speak forgiveness. It's a matter of when God will show up to speak forgiveness. I'm prone to being Debbie Downer. I pastor a few Debbie Downers. First training will. We don't wait well when we idolize or enjoy our waiting. When we try to gain life from our doubt and from our cynicism, we're not waiting well. But also, point five, second training will. Uh, how, how can we know that we 
waited well, waited well. And here's how. Is there more worship in your life? We can know that God showed up and spoke forgiveness and acceptance. We can know that God has lifted us from the pit. We can know that we haven't accepted the low place as the new normal if we love God more when it's all said and done. Look at verse 4. But with you there is forgiveness, that, so that, you may be feared. Biblical fear is not being scared of God. Biblical fear is to be in awe of God and to increase in your desire to walk with God. Shakespeare wrote this, nothing emboldens sin so much as mercy. Nothing emboldens sin so much as mercy. In other words, Shakespeare thought that mercy would produce more sin, but Shakespeare was wrong. The Bible teaches over and over that if you really come into contact with a living God who is merciful, if God himself speaks himself mercy to you as opposed to you giving it to yourself or as opposed to someone else giving it to you, when God does that, you don't sin more, you worship more. You desire to walk with him more. You increasingly want to live for him. But not only do we worship more when when we've waited well, past tense, but secondly, you know that you've waited well if you're telling people more and more to wait for the Lord. Look at verses 7 and 8. Again, the first half of the psalm is the psalmist speaking to God. The second half of the psalm is the psalmist speaking to other followers of God. He commands them in verse 7 to wait for the Lord. You can know that you waited well and you experienced God if you're willing to endure the discomfort of others as they wait. We have a tendency when people confess sin in our presence, we have a tendency to short-circuit it and to shortcut it. Folks will be headed to the low place. We get uncomfortable. We try to give them forgiveness as if we're God. But if we've waited well, and if we've had the Father fall on our neck and kiss us a thousand times, increasingly, we will not try and be God to that person. But we'll instead tell them to get as low as they can go and all the while remind them With God is plentiful redemption and steadfast love. We will be willing to command them to wait for the Lord when they're begging for us to save them. Because it's one thing to be told that honey is sweet. It's another to taste the sweetness of honey. It's one thing to know about God and his forgiveness. It's another thing to know God and that forgiveness. Finally, last couple of minutes uh, for today. How can we know that our waiting is not in vain? In other words, if we get as low as we can go, how can we know that God will come? The other night I was flipping through uh, the thousand channels that are on my TV, and uh, I saw the face uh, of a rugged-looking individual with tattoos and scars all over it, but the face was not hard. The face was soft, and there were tears in this man's eyes, and Uh, In a few minutes, I realized that I was watching a show that tells the stories of inmates on death row and that this man grew up with his mom and his seven siblings uh, from various men. And he he was recounting how on his 14th birthday, the plan was for his father, the the father that he rarely ever saw, the plan was for his father to pick him up from school and spend the afternoon and the evening with him. And so when all of his friends got into their parents' car and left, when all of his friends got onto the bus, when his siblings got onto the bus to head home, he sat there and he waited and he waited, and he waited. Teachers, uh, faculty, uh, uh, staff, uh, uh, the leadership of the school would come out, and they would offer him a ride. He would say, no, I'm going to stay right here. My dad's coming to get me. 
He's going to bless me. Finally, a policeman who he had turned away multiple times finally commanded him to get into the car. It was the dark hours of the night, and the policeman drove him home. He never saw his father again. He said at first he acted like it was no big deal. He said, only recently have I come to realize how devastating that event was to my story. Now, how can we know that that won't happen to us? How can we know we won't be devastated by waiting in vain? I I know the illustration doesn't line up perfectly because the boy didn't deserve to be abandoned. It wasn't his fault that he was alone, but because we've sinned, we deserve to be abandoned. We should be left alone. But if we own our sin, if we stop giving excuses, if we resist religion and irreligion, if we keep crying out for mercy, if we do whatever we can to crush our heart, if we resist the well-intentioned substitute saviors, how can we know that God will come? How can we know that forgiveness and steadfast love and plentiful redemption will be with him when he shows up? While we cannot know when, we can know that God will come. We can know that God will not abandon us in the depths because God abandoned Jesus on the cross as he experienced the depths our sins deserved. God is not God if he doesn't show up. When we identify with our sin and repentance, we can know that God will come and redeem us because when Jesus identified with our sin on the cross, God did not show up and rescue him. We can wait knowing that the Father will come because Jesus waited and was forsaken and left behind and abandoned. Jesus asks, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And heaven replies, I'm forsaking you so I can embrace them. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you that there was no hypocrisy in your life. I thank you that you are a brilliant teacher and that you lived a beautiful life. I thank you that there was no gap between what you said was true and what you said you would do and what you did. I thank you that you never wore a mask. I praise you because my teaching and my life do not line up on this topic. There is a massive gap between what I teach and what I do. I praise you, Jesus, and I thank you, Jesus, because you went to the cross for my hypocrisy. You went to the cross because my words and my actions don't line up. And I thank you for the beauty of the gospel, that the wrath of God was poured out on you so that I might be forgiven, that God abandoned you so that he could adopt me. Jesus, we praise you and we thank you. Please send your spirit to bring that forgiveness to our hearts. Please, by your Holy Spirit, pour out your love into our hearts. Would you extend not just our understanding of this passage, but our experience of this passage and those like them in the Bible that we might love you more and serve you more and enjoy you more and be different. In your name we pray, Jesus.